We have been meeting Jesus in the Gospel of John, and today we come to John chapter 5, and so if you would, turn with me there, John chapter 5, verse 1, it should be page 890 uh, if you're using a red pew Bible. So far we have seen Jesus gather disciples, meet an outcast woman at a well and bring her life, and then be sort of welcomed at his hometown in Galilee, not as the Savior of the world, but simply as a, as a miracle worker. And now we come to chapter 5. Let's give attention to what God says in his word. After this... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Look, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because... He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working up to now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Father, Would you breathe the breath of life, bring life to death? Would you pierce the darkness with your words of light? Lord God, would you preach through John 5, through to hearts that are darkened with sin, to dead people who desperately need resuscitation to be made alive, to strugglers who need to see Jesus again 
Would you work through your word, by the power of your spirit, to accomplish your good and perfect will? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me, uh, let me set the scene for you. Jesus is a good, law-abiding Jewish man. And in Jewish life of Jesus' day, there were several festivals, several feasts, religious holidays, at which you had to go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the, the beating heart of Jewish life. Uh, and so just like many of you may go to Grandma's house on Thanksgiving, kind of like a religious holiday, right? You make a pilgrimage to Grandma's house. Uh, good Jews made a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. So that's why Jesus is going back. He's been to his hometown in Galilee. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. And actually, the reason I say that is because we're going to see it again and again in John's Gospel. The rest of the book is really framed around Jesus' trips to Jerusalem. And usually, when he's there for a festival or a feast like Passover, uh, something he does or says has a relation to that feast. We don't know the name of this feast. It doesn't necessarily have bearing on what Jesus does. We just know that it involves a Sabbath. And notice where Jesus goes, right? There's this pool in Jerusalem. And at this pool, this pool called Bethesda, there are many, multitudes, hundreds, I don't, I don't know, of sick people. People who are desperately looking to be well. People who are desperately looking to be cured, blind, lame, paralyzed. Can you, can you imagine all of these people in one place, gathering around this pool in the hopes that if they can just get in the water, maybe, just maybe, they'll be made well. And so that's where our scene takes place, and here's what we're going to see happen. We're going to see that Jesus, really the main idea of this passage is that Jesus works to heal people disabled by sin. Jesus works to heal people disabled by sin. He brings health and life and wholeness. But first, let's, let's go back to the pool and let's see these people who are looking for healing in all the wrong places. There isn't, uh, in Jesus' day, there's not much of a safety net for disabled people, for handicapped people, right? There's no... There's no disability checks. There's no Medicaid or Medicare. There's no safety net. And so the condition of this group of people is particularly desperate. They have no one to look after them. They live basically by the mercy of others. They live by the mercy of others. So you can imagine then if economic conditions go south, that these are the first people on the chopping block, right? There's no one to give money. And so they all gravitate to the one place that maybe they think they can find some hope. Except that their hope is really just kind of a superstition. That what they think is going to happen here, and actually if you look at your, uh, at your Bible, you'll notice that in many of your translations, particularly if they're more modern, they're missing verse number 4. And we've talked about this before, right? That when... When a verse like this is omitted, it means that we have more reliable manuscripts that don't have that verse. And so what, 
What happens, just very briefly, we have thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament in different parts of it. All right? And from those, you have the, the Bible in your hand, the, the New Testament in your hand. And what we realize over time is, and what we try to discern, is this something that John wrote or was it added later? And the majority of people think that verse 4, because the best manuscripts we have, the oldest and the best, don't have verse 4. And so we say, well, that probably wasn't a part of the original. But you can tell from looking at verse 7 that this man expects something to happen in this pool. The water stirs periodically. It's probably fed by a spring underneath, and so the water would stir up. And this legend develops that at some point, right, an angel walks into the water and stirs the water. And whoever can get into the water first will be healed. So they have this legend, this superstition that, that when they see the water moving, it must be that the angel is there. And if I can just get in, then my body is going to be made well. Have you ever been that desperate? Right? When everything else, when everything else has failed you, when everything else has let you go, that you're willing to just kind of cling on to whatever somebody will say. Right? And that's where these people are. You can... Imagine the pandemonium, the pitiful scene that whenever the water stirs, you have all of these very sick people trying to get however they can into the water just for a hope to be cured. So this place is full of needy, desperate people, and they're striving after a questionable cure. Does that sound familiar? And so we shouldn't be surprised at all that we find Jesus there in the midst of all of these desperate people looking for a questionable cure. And he asked this man, he says, do you want to be healed? And that word healed means whole, healthy, well. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be well? This man has been paralyzed. It looks like John doesn't tell us that, but by the fact that he can't, get into the water or stand up, it looks like this man is probably paralyzed. And he's been that way for 38 years. 38 years. I'm not, I'm not 38 yet. But 38 to, to live to 38 years in Jesus' day was pretty good. Right? Can you imagine being paralyzed for 38 years? The bitterness that would set up the desperation that would set up. And so it's to this man. Jesus sees him. He knows how long he's been there. And he asks him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? Do you want me to restore your body to the way that it was meant to be? Do you want me to make you whole like you would have been whole if there were no sin in the world? And that's really what Jesus' miracles are all about. Whatever else, um, we tend to kind of gravitate. We looked at this some last week. We tend to gravitate to the fireworks display. That if Jesus does something really neat, uh, we saw lots of people gravitate to those, but they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. But here's what Jesus' miracles teach. Here's what they say. God has broken into the world, and he is making the world right. God has broken into the world, and he is making it right. That's what the miracles are meant to tell us. That one 
who is a man but more powerful than a man, even God himself has broken in and he's putting an end to sin and its effects. But of course, all of Jesus' miracles are just temporary. This man will eventually die. All of the miracles, the wine at the wedding is all drunk up, right? So the miracles are temporary. They point to the only real and lasting miracle, which is Jesus himself. That God would deem it, that God would stoop, that God would love so much that he takes on the flesh of his creation and enters into the world to make things right. And so Jesus' offer of healing for this man is really meant to point Jesus to himself, to point Jesus to a deeper need, and we'll talk about that later. And I want you to notice this too. Jesus seeks this man out. There are many needy people around this pool, and Jesus chooses this one. And I don't know why. John doesn't tell us. But he chooses him out of all of the others, maybe because he's been there the longest, maybe because his need was so great. But it's not this man who comes to Jesus. It's Jesus who comes to this man. And here's what we learn. First of all, that Jesus is better than man-made superstition. Right? Jesus says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? The sick man answers, sir, I don't have anybody to put me into the pool. The water is my best hope. And there's no one here who's willing to carry me in when it gets stirred up. And every time I try to get in, somebody else breaks in front of me. They get in before I do. So, do I want to be well? Yeah, I've tried. And I've failed. And then Jesus says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once, the man is healed. Thirty-eight years paralyzed, ended with three simple commands. Get up, take your bed, and walk. Thirty-eight years of futility and anger and desperation. For, for nearly four decades, this man has lain on this mat. I don't even want to know what it smelled like. And Jesus says, get up. And he gets up. Why take the mat? Why not just throw it away? Because for nearly four decades, this man has been identified as disabled. This man has been identified with the mat that he lays on. And so now Jesus says, you pick it up and you carry it with you. It was a symbol of your identity, of your disability. Now is a symbol of your health and wholeness. That mat can find you for nearly four decades. Now with three words, you get to walk around and carry it. Jesus gives this man a symbol of his victory. And for 38 years, he had hoped in the superstitious healing power of this water. And in one second, he is made whole in a way that no man-made superstition can ever make whole. So Jesus is better than superstition. He is the cure that actually works. And we do this, right? 
Well, we'll get to that in a second. We'll see how we are, who we are in this story. Not only is Jesus better than superstition, Jesus is better than man-made religion. John quickly tells us in verse 9 that this day was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day for rest and gladness. It was, a, it was meant to be a day of God's wholeness. So it's fitting that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Right? Because if you go back to the Old Testament, if you see the commands in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, you can see that the Sabbath is meant for our good. For one day in seven, we get to stop. For one day in seven, we get to stop and rest and reflect on who God is and what he's done. And just as a side note... I want you to go today, some point, go to Deuteronomy 5. We usually, we're familiar with the command from Exodus 20. But I want you to go to Deuteronomy 5 uh, where Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments, but he changes the reason. In Deuteronomy 5, the reason for the Sabbath is given as this, that you were slaves in Egypt and now you are free. You are not meant to be enslaved to your work, America. You are not meant to work 24-7. You are meant to rest. You are built to rest. The Sabbath is for that. So that's what the Sabbath was meant to be. But here's what the Sabbath had become. Verse 10, The Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. All right, we get to meet our friends, the scribes and Pharisees again, and And here's what they were really good at, okay? They took the law, as they read it in the Old Testament, good, holy, perfect revelation of God's character, and then in order to try and help people keep it, they devised all these little minute details, right? So they would take the principle of the law and break it down into things you could easily do or not do. And they were particularly persnickety about the Sabbath. In fact, they had come up with 39 ways you could break the Sabbath. Just 39. Okay? You could imagine it would, have, it would be like a little brochure. 39 ways uh, that you can break the Sabbath and how not to do it. Right? 39 different types of work you would do that would desecrate the Sabbath. So, and actually in that vein... After you get done reading Deuteronomy 5 this afternoon, I want you to Google kosher switch. Because for an Orthodox Jewish person, even the turning on of a light is the desecration of the Sabbath. And so there is legitimately a a product called the kosher switch that turns the lights on for you so that you don't have to desecrate the Sabbath. And that sounds humorous to us, But we do the exact same thing. We hinge all of our identity and being and living not on God's good law as revealed, but on our man-made interpretation of it. Find me somewhere in the New Testament that it says a five-minute quiet time will get you by. And that if you don't have one daily, you're in big, big trouble. And yet most of us live that way. Five minutes. Right? What does Psalm 119 talk about but meditating on the Lord day and night? So it's interesting that the law, God's law, 
Not only does it encompass our whole character, but it goes deeper than any man-made regulation could ever do. Right? Pray 10 minutes a day. That's, that's the Christian law. So if we don't do that, we have not prayed and we are in big trouble. And what, is, what do the scriptures teach? Pray without ceasing. So it's not that God requires less, but that what he asks is really so much more and so much better. 39 ways that you could break the Sabbath. Uh, the tagline on the kosher switch is, let me see if I can find it here in my notes, make Sabbath desecration impossible. Oh, that I could do that. Oh, that I could make desecrating God's law impossible. But no amount of man-made regulation will do that. No amount of man-made religion fixes this. But the Jewish leaders notice that uh, this fellow is carrying his mat. You can't carry a burden on the Sabbath. So that's illegal. You're in trouble. And so they ask him. They tell, they tell him it's not lawful, and he says, well, listen, the guy that healed me, this is a great answer. Listen, the man who just healed me from 38 years of disability, he told me to pick it up. So I'm going to go with him, right? Um, notice how blind their response is. Which man told you to pick up your mat and walk? Dude just told you he had been healed. This guy's been lying next to a pool for 40 years and you missed it because you were so concerned about him breaking the Sabbath. Who's really disabled in this story? Who's really blind in this story? That's right. And so the Jews now are less interested in this guy, the man who had been made well, and now they're gunning for Jesus. And really the Pharisees and the sick man are the same. The sick man had missed the point by hanging out next to this pool just in hopes that he might be made whole, that he would be made well. And the Pharisees missed the point by thinking that if I just slavishly follow our man-made religion, I will be made whole. I will be made well. I will be made right. And they're missing the point of the law and they're trusting their wellness to their own works. And Jesus looks at both. Jesus confronts both kinds of people with himself and says, you're sick. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? Finally, we see that Jesus, he's better than man-made superstition, he's better than man-made religion, and he's better than judgment. This guy doesn't know who Jesus is. He, was, he missed Jesus going back into the crowd. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Look, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse will happen to you. So Jesus goes and he finds this man, and he points to his physical healing, 
to draw him, draw, draw him to a greater healing, right, to his spiritual need. Now let's talk for a second about sin and consequences. Jesus says, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen. And this is similar, this situation is similar to one that we see in John 9, where Jesus heals a man who has been born blind. And if you remember that story, right, Jesus' disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And at that point, Jesus says, no one sinned. This has happened so that the glory of God may be revealed. But in this particular case, Jesus is implying that this man was disabled for 38 years because of a particular sin. So here's, here's how we can respond to that. Here's how we can think about that. On a general, in a general sense, in a world that has fallen and racked with sin and in bodies that are racked with sin in general, we will experience aging, sin, death, pain, mourning, and grief. Like that is, a, that is a part of life in a fallen world. And so in a general sense, we cannot always trace an illness or a disability back to something we've done. It is not helpful to say, you have cancer because you sinned, because of this particular sin. We don't have a window into that. God doesn't give us that kind of authority and vision. Okay? That's general. But specifically, sin has consequences. And that oftentimes, when we do something, when we sin, consequences like disability can follow that God will administer a discipline for that. And so that seems to be the case here, that Jesus is saying to this man, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen. But here's two cautions. The first is, kind of, the first is personal. Don't obsess. When something befalls you, when tragedy or crisis strikes, don't obsess over if you don't know what led to it, don't obsess over thinking, oh, what have I done? How have I offended the Lord? Does he hate me? What did I do that brought this on my family or on me? That's not what Jesus is after here, and that's not helpful when we do that. Sometimes the line is very clear between sin and consequence. When we suffer, we know directly. Okay? Um, not that this ever happens. But when my wife is angry with me, all right, I can usually trace that line pretty clearly back from the consequence to the sin that originated that consequence, okay? But we cannot always trace the line, you know, between an illness or the death of a loved one, and it is not helpful to trace that line backwards. And then, on a more global, interpersonal sense, don't pretend to know what God's purpose in suffering is especially for other people. This is very popular uh, for public Christian figures to do, to say things like, this hurricane happened as a judgment on blank. And I remember that. I remember uh, living in Meridian, Mississippi, when Hurricane Katrina hit. 
Uh, and we did not get nearly the devastation, of course, that the Gulf Coast did, but we got lashed pretty good. And the national word from some very popular Christian people was, that's a judgment against New Orleans. You don't know that. And you have no right. You have no right to take up the, to be the voice of God in those particular situations. And if you do have a particular insight on a personal level, then you approach it with humility and gentleness because none of us in here is Jesus. All right, so that's on sin and consequences. Back to the story. What does Jesus mean when he says something worse may happen to you? Or really, excuse me, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. What is Jesus doing? Well, there's something worse. I don't know what could be worse than disabled and unable to move for nearly 40 years. Ultimately, we're talking about God's judgment here. Jesus is, Jesus is trying to, he's telling this man to repent. He's saying, turn back from your way of life, repent, and believe. Right? He says, sin no more. Now, I don't know what you would say if I, saw, if I told you that. Um, but I can imagine what I would say. Right? That's impossible. But I want you to notice what this man doesn't say. Jesus gives him this command, don't sin. Sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. And he doesn't say, how is that possible? I need, I need help. I'm a sinner. I can't fix my broken heart. Where can that be healed? You've healed my body. Where can my heart be healed? He doesn't say that. He just goes back to the Jewish leaders and tattletales on Jesus. And so it looks like, right, what he should have said, what I just said, that's what repentance looks like. That when confronted with the admonition to not sin, to not break, the God's, to not break God's law, to not desecrate the Sabbath, we say, how in the world is that possible? I need help. I need somebody else. That's what repentance is. This man does not repent. He runs back to the Jewish leaders and tells them what Jesus has done. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting, harassing Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was healing people on the Sabbath. And here's how Jesus responds. My father is working until now. That doesn't mean the father has stopped working, but he's saying up from, from creation up to this very moment, my father has been at work and I am working. So what Jesus says is, I have a right to work on the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. It's my law. Thomas, would you cut the AC down a little bit back there? Somebody else not? All right. I made the Sabbath. It's my law. I have a right to work on the Sabbath, especially works of mercy and works of healing and works of wholeness. So it's always lawful to do works of mercy on the Sabbath. It's always lawful to bring hope and healing on the Sabbath. But they do not believe that he is God. He makes that claim. And we're going to see more of this next week. Jesus defends himself against their, uh, against their unbelief. But because they do not believe he is God, and because he is claiming to be, they want to kill him. 
And this is the issue that will carry the rest of the gospel. Opposition only gets heavier from here. Jesus claims to be God, which is blasphemy if he's not. And so he has to be put to death. And so this is the core. Jesus' identity is the core of opposition. And it still is. Even today. If Jesus is who he says he is, and did what he said he did, then he's either, right as I think it's C.S. Lewis, he's either Lord or lunatic or a liar. And if you do not own him as Lord, then you have to own him as one of the other two. And that's the dividing line. We are the superstitious people. We are the people who trust in man-made religion. Who miss the true work of God because we're worried about nitpicking God's law. And judgment waits for both. Judgment waits for all of those who will not own Jesus as Lord. But we see the good news is that Jesus' work brings healing and life for people like that. You're sick. Do you want to be well? Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the mercy that you show us in Jesus, the mercy and the power and the glory and the grace pouring forth from the Son of God that brings hope and healing and ultimately forgiveness of sins, which is our real disability. Our real handicap is that we are sinners at heart and we need a new heart. And for that, we must come to Jesus. And so, Lord, would you draw us, Holy Spirit, give new hearts that we may get up, pick up our mats, and walk. We ask it in Jesus' name.